Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Welcome to Little Gold Men, an award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. This week, we have finally laid our eyes on Star Wars The Force Awakens, so Richard and I will talk about that screening experience and, of course, whether or not it will be up for any Oscars, which is the question we've been asking ourselves, among many others, about Star Wars for months now. From there, we'll talk to Jennifer Jason Leigh, who not only stars in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, but also in Charlie Kaufman's stop-motion animated Anomalisa. And then we'll close out by going big before we go home and predicting who we think will win Best Cinematography, and it might be someone winning for the third time in a row, which has never happened before. So, Richard, we've seen Star Wars The Force Awakens, which still feels kind of like a weird thing to say. I have a Star Wars hangover this morning. (laughs) Is there a surrealness to knowing that, like, the wait is over and you have seen a new Star Wars movie? I was walking to the studio this morning and thinking, well, that happened. I I did it. I sat there. I watched it after all those years of waiting. So, yeah, it's a little surreal, but it's also exciting because um, I think we both really liked it. Yeah. The exciting thing is that this movie came with unimaginable amounts of hype. And I think without necessarily being a perfect movie, it managed to actually live up to its expectations. Like, J.J. Abrams, I think, is known at this point for, like, being really good at starting something. And, like, he made The Amazing Lost Pilot, and he made the great Star Trek reboot and uh, kind of restarted a Mission Impossible. Um, and what's exciting is he's made this great start to something, and he's not directing the next one. So we can kind of just watch him set up all these toys and then run away from it. Yeah, he's left really good notes, I think, for the for the next two directors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he did exactly what I think it was clear he was going to do since he was hired. He talked about returning to the old aesthetic of the 70s with practical effects and, you know, a sort of, uh, I think I used the word in my review, shaggy. I mean, it, 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 uh, as opposed to the George Lucas prequels, which are so computer animated and kind of tame and, and sort of kitty in a way, this returns to something a little bit more, a little rougher, a little bit uh, kind of messier, which I think is yeah. exactly what people like about Star Wars as opposed to Star Trek, which is mm. sort of built to be this kind of pristine, sort of ordered, you know, governmental you know, expedition into space. Star Wars oh, is yeah. not that, you know. So we should say from the start, and you said it in your review that's on VanityFair.com right now, uh, Disney has asked us uh, kindly but firmly not to share too many plot details, and I don't think we're that interested in sharing a lot of plot details anyway, so... No, I, I think, you know, I would want anyone 
to to go in as as kind of uh, with a blank slate as possible. Yeah. yeah. Um but you know, if you don't want to know anything about Star Wars, maybe don't listen to this part. Um but I think what is so impressive about this movie to me is that you've got Leia and Han and Chewie and C3PO and all these people returning, but the new characters, the first 40 45 minutes or so are really just about these new characters and so quickly they establish themselves as people who you want to follow for the rest of the film. So you got Daisy Ridley as Rey, who is you know the girl who grows up on this very Tatooine-like planet and is a scavenger and you can kind of see you see the shots of her in the trailer you're like oh she's the Luke Skywalker um, and then you get John Boyega as Finn who is kind of a um, he's a stormtrooper who defected from the uh, the new version of the Empire which is the first order in this movie um, who I don't think has a really obvious cognate to the original Star Wars movies which is makes him really interesting I think yeah he he I spent a little time watching the movie trying to figure out where he kind of fits in that schematic mm-hmm. but I think that he doesn't and I think that if they were going to have Daisy Ridley's character Ray. Um, play, like you said, the kind of Luke role, but she's also kind of the Han role in a, in a funny way. Yeah, that's true. Um, maybe they just wanted to invent a new sort of strain for the story to go yeah. in. Although for a little bit, maybe the first 30 minutes, 40 minutes, they do a little bit of a fake out where you think that maybe Finn is sort of more the ordained kind of character, and then, and mm. then you know, um, which I liked. I liked yeah. that they kind of kept us guessing about whose story we really, really were watching. I thought that Daisy Ridley was fantastic. Oh my God. I thought the She's character so was great. so well written. I love that uh, a young woman is at the center of this enormous story um, and presumably enormous trilogy. Um, or God knows at oh, yeah, this point. <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? Um, 12 more movies. Sure, yeah. I'd watch them um, at but this it, point. And it's not just making it a young woman. It's not being like, oh, well, we'll just have a girl in the in front of it. So she's really, she's female in a really specific way and she's really different from Luke Skywalker in ways that like, set her apart. She's such a good character and Daisy Ridley is really, I mean, this is one of those things that I think Star Wars can do and big franchises can do. You find someone you've never seen before and you say, wow, that is someone who I will watch for nine or 12 or whatever many movies. Yeah, and I think that's why it was really important in some ways for J.J. Abrams to find an actor who he could kind of create, you know, a, a persona for in a way. I mean, we didn't really know Daisy Ridley prior to this. She has some, a few credits on IMDb, but the shock of the new, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. like the sort of we're, we're very uh, welcome to accept her as anything because we don't know who she is, um, which I think is genius for, for the movie. Uh, who knows, 20 years from now, Daisy Ridley might be like, God damn it, I wish <laughs> <laughs> everyone just thinks I'm Bray. But um, for now, I think that it's a real success, her casting. And, yeah. um, and I, you know, and John Boyega too. I mean, he's really, they have a great chemistry together. You know, there's a couple scenes right after they first meet where um, he keeps trying to help her and she's she's not sort of um, too off put by it but there's little indications that she's like I don't need help and but and it's in a flirty way sort of but also it's just in like establishing that Ray is her own lead character who doesn't mm-hmm. sort of need this kind of offsetting by by a, a yeah. male character. And then you've got these two other major characters who are kind of played by known factor actors, um, all, both of whom I also think are incredible. Oscar Isaac is the fighter pilot named Poe Dameron, which I still think is a ridiculous name. Yeah, it is. Um, but he, I mean, he is, in, in, I think he is also the Han Solo of this movie. Everyone gets to be the Han Solo of yeah, this movie. Yeah. Um, and he's Even Han Solo. Yeah, he's so great. He's got this great 70s hair. He's really mm-hmm. funny. He gets the first laugh line of the entire movie um, in a scene where he's facing off against Kylo Ren, who's played by Adam Driver. Um, it's an Inside Lewin Davis reunion for those of us who care about such things. It is. Um, and Adam Driver is, uh, you know, you've seen him in the, in the previews. He's wearing a uh, helmet. He's very much aping himself after Darth Vader. He's kind of like a Darth Vader fanboy who's trying to uh, pick up where he left off. But uh, he's Adam Driver-y about it. He's got like a sing-songy voice. You can hear him even when he's under the helmet, like talking in this kind of modulated 
Darth Vader voice, you hear that there's a human voice under that. And as the film goes on, you kind of uh, get more of him as a character and kind of understanding how he's like trying to be Darth Vader, but isn't that good at it yet. And there's so much interesting layers to that character. And, and yeah, he and Oscar Isaac, the roles are really different. But as actors who we'd seen in things before, I think both of them bring so much to this. Yeah. And I think the cool thing about Kylo Ren, Adam Driver's character, is that there is, like you said, a kind of more modern um, pathos behind the character. You know, I mean, we eventually figure out what motivates Darth Vader and why he sort of, you know, is so obsessed with Luke Skywalker. And uh, and by the end of Return of the Jedi, he gets some measure of redemption. Mm-hmm. But we kind of start from the get-go with this Kylo Ren character as uh, as a human being. Um, and and I think that's, you know, a neat kind of tweak on, on the original Star Wars. And it sets up maybe even a deeper drama uh, going forward. Um, and yeah, and the and the uh, the Oscar Isaac character is just fun. You know, I like that he didn't take center stage. I, I think that he's a fun supporting kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, he drives the story forward. He does cool things in an X wing. Like that's kind of all you need from from a. But also, like you see there to be room in future movies for him to be more than that. Like, oh sure, a, yeah. they, they all of these characters were newly established. I think you know Gwendolyn Christie's Captain Phasma has been kind of set up as this you know really cool badass character in the helmet, like very Boba Fett like in that way. But even yeah. her, like, there's so much potential. Donald Gleason is this kind of supporting uh, character in the First Order who's like, you know, like all the uh, British guys on the Death Star in the previous movies with yeah. these stuffed shirts. He's like so perfectly in the model Sort of, of that. pointy and p- pale face and yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a lot of the guys in, in the, you know, like, almost like Grand Moff Tarkin or whatever. Yeah. A uh, younger version of. Yeah, I mean, the, ca- the, the cast is really good. I mean, it's a really well cast film. Um, it's a nice mix of faces you've seen, faces you haven't. Um, and, you know, I think that, well, you know, Lupita Nyong'o plays mm-hmm. a character that's entirely kind of motion cap which is there? there's very little of in this movie, which mm-hmm. I liked a lot um, compared to um, the prequel trilogy. Um, but she makes an impression and she stands out and she could have more to do. And I think people were a little nervous that like this great kind of new actress was sort of stuck behind all this computer imagery, but she sells it. And, um, yeah. you know, I think from top to bottom, this is a really um, neat group of people in service of a great story. And also Harrison Ford is great in it. Which... Yes, we should, yeah, he's great. Um, Peter Mayhew is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie Fisher's great. BB-8. BB-8 not, is awesome. Not yeah. played by a yeah. person, but yeah, yeah. yeah BB-8 really sold me from the very yeah. beginning. He's like the oh, one of the first shots you see in the movie and it's like a Spielberg fan like looking up at the sky being awed by what you see but it's this little soccer ball robot yeah yeah oh yeah that it's there's so much charm to it and so much liveliness and like you were saying if you've you watched the prequels recently and like they're so devoid of all of that that it's really I mean it's it's aping Star Wars like in, a lot of people call this a, basically a remake of A New Hope it's mm-hmm. got so many similarities to it but it's kind of in some ways just like wiping the deck clear from the prequels and being like okay here's what it's like to have a, a Star Wars movie again and have this like experience of a story and being within a world that you feel like is a real place yeah and I kind of touched that uh, on that in my review that like there is a whiff for me a little bit here and there that, that Abrams maybe goes a little too heavy on the kind of callbacks to the 1977 movie. Um, there are certain plot beats that are almost exactly the same. Um, there's a trench that things have to fly <laughs> through. There's a big orb that has to be blown up. You know, uh, there are a lot of other little small things like that. But um, for the most part, you know, we're talking about a movie that came out 38 years ago. Um, and a lot of kids and teenagers now aren't as familiar with that original trilogy. And so why not give them a new, fresh thing with people who are just a little bit older than them, uh, you know, as the leading roles? Like, I think it's fine, you know, and us kind of older fans uh, can just enjoy kind of seeing a, a new tweak on on the same myth. Which and is, also, know. how many movies and TV shows have already made, remade Star Wars in the meantime? Like, well, everything exactly. is remaking yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. So yeah. now Star Wars can remake Star yeah. Wars. But that um, that kind of lack of originality is a way to put it, which I don't, I don't, I think this movie is very original in a lot of ways. Um, 
when it comes to the Oscar part of the conversation, which is, you know, ostensibly what we're here to talk about, I do think makes it trickier. Like when blockbusters get nominated for Oscars for me, it's because they're presenting something really new. And that was the appeal of the original Star Wars in 1977. Like it's really hard for us born after that to know how new that was at the time that it came out. So I wonder about this in terms, I mean, it's coming out really late. People haven't seen it. Like Oscar ballots are due in three weeks. Like for it to kind of sweep in there and like get a Best Picture nomination was going to be really hard to begin with. But I think no matter how much I love this movie, and I really love this movie, I don't know if if I were voting for an Oscar, if I'd be like, oh, yeah, let's make room for Star Wars. Like, it's a really great Star Wars movie, but I don't know if it's the kind of blockbuster that sweeps in in that way. Yeah, and I think also it's it's hampered by the fact that another... uh installment in in an old you know an old film series uh, Mad Max has been gotten such momentum that like I don't I don't know if if necessarily there's room for two mm. kind of similar-ish movies uh, to, Although it is nothing like Mad Max. No, no, it's nothing like Mad Max, except that, like, you know, the original was 30-something years yeah. ago. It, it's you know, an imaginative take on yeah, the same story. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that, you know, we should never underestimate the nostalgia factor when it comes to this franchise in particular. Um, I think that it's so well done. Um, Mike has said, you know, in the past about uh, a movie like this having tons of below the line people who are rooting for those these kind of big productions to succeed and get a, you know get acclaim so that could help mm-hmm. um even though they only have 3 weeks everyone's dying to see this anyway yes so, everyone will see so it so voters will see it yeah. um and i think that you know if anything maybe it poses maybe it, it's posing a threat to mad max not mad max posing a threat to it i don't know mm, interesting i was also thinking about the martian in terms of just sci-fi right. movies that are competing and like yeah. when i think about the martian the martian is something that i feel actively like i should root for cuz it's this movie that's made for grown-ups it's r rated it's really different it's doing something weird and it became a big hit. Like Star Wars, I'm glad it's out there, but I don't feel the pull to root for it in the same way because it's such a juggernaut. Like you know that it's going to be big with or without you. Right. I mean, I would I would almost hope, you know, if the films can build on, on the success of this first one um, and by three – you know, the third chapter, what is it, or eight? Uh, uh, no, nine. nine like, that's nine, the one directed by Colin Trevorrow that everyone's oh, a, little, a little nervous about. So eight is the one that's directed by Ryan Johnson, which right. I think is there's a lot more faith. Well, who, who knows? These, I mean, God knows right. what's going to happen with these movies. I'm just thinking, like, Return of the King won the Best Picture Oscar, mm-hmm. not Lord of the Rings. Fellowship, mm-hmm. Not Fellowship of the Ring. Um, so maybe, maybe its Oscar chances will build slowly over three films. Yeah. This is a great start. Um, I think you're right that this is a crowded ne- field and that... Um, it might be a little too late in the game for it to really make a, a play. I would give them a visual effects Oscar for BB-8 alone. I'm so yeah. I still don't fully thing. understand how that thing works, I but I, maybe I don't want to. It's yeah. uh, I mean just just the, just knowing that it's really there and it, like there's one scene where it's like a. They're trying to escape something, and uh, John Boyega is kind of trying to carry BB-8 down into it, and then like the robot lands on him with this clunk. You feel that that that's a thing in the world. Um, And if you've watched the prequels recently, that's such a relief. It is. Um, is. So, Richard, would this have made your top ten if you'd seen it in time? Um, No, I don't think so. I think it would have made honorable mention. I think that I... Um, I really liked it. I think I'm a little less high on it than you are. Um, but I think that's only because I maybe unfairly hold the originals in such high esteem. They're such foundational You're text. You're not the only one. <laughs> for my uh, sort of understanding of movies and my love of movies. Um, but no, I mean, I think that it's in, in no way is it, you know, is it a disappointment. I think it's great. I think it's fun. I will see it again. And uh, I think it will sort of stand up. So I wouldn't yeah. have put a top 10, but maybe maybe 12. Yeah, I mean, I loved it. And I also don't know if it would have been on my top yeah. 10. I was sitting there trying to think if like it would have knocked out like Creed or The Martian. But mm-hmm. I have an affection for those movies that I think is, like I was saying, because of what they're trying that's daring and feels like it's really attempting something different. Even though Creed is so much like Star Wars and that it's taking a 70s property and basically remaking it while making it a sequel. Right. Um, but it's uh, I really 
have such a huge affection for this movie, but I don't know if it would have pushed it over that limit for me. But again, like I don't think that matters. I it, think it's a it exists in a different son. space other than the other movies this year. Yeah, there, there was everything you know before Star Wars, and then there's Star Wars as its own movie season, you know, so <laughs> or own movie year. So I think that we can we can view it as its own sort of cloistered entity and enjoy and it's it. It's just such. it's so fun. Like I'm just so glad that it's, it's Star Wars season, and this movie is worth having its own season. And mm-hmm. I think it's gonna be a really fun couple of weeks with people getting to see it and talking about it. And yeah. come next week when more people have seen it, we can talk about all the plot details online. And yeah, you know. yeah, and there are a lot of plot details that um, that we were actually just talking about one in particular before we started recording that I'm really curious to have the real diehards kind of answer for me or, or theorize yeah. about. Um, and one, you know, other well, last good thing I like about this movie, it's almost think piece proof. <laughs> oh, think. you say that. I say, oh, God, I've just, I just attempted fate. But um, but I think, you know, I, I don't think there's going to be a ton of... Um, Star Wars has a women problem. Star Wars has I a hope, diversity yeah, problem. I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Who knows? But I, Yeah, I mean, this is such an effortlessly diverse movie in terms of gender and race specifically. That is, you watch the way it does it. And the Star Trek movies did this too, I think. Um, you watch it and you're like, oh, why isn't that so easy for everybody else? Like, why can't everyone else do that that way? Yeah. Um, so if anything, it's really setting a great model for that. And, you know, this world is so expansive and there's so many characters to play with that... There's so much to look forward to that isn't going to be all about white dudes. When does the next one come out? Is it soon? (laughs) Not soon enough. Oh, boy. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. And now we'll move on to our conversation with Jennifer Jason Lee, the star of Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, as well as Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa. We began our conversation by asking her about her role in The Hateful Eight as Daisy, a woman who has been sentenced to be hung by Kurt Russell's character, the hangman, and uh, is probably the most villainous person in this entire cast of villains. And what you got to say about all this? What I got to say about John Reese Ravens? Absolutely right. Me and one of them fellows is in cahoots. We're just waiting for everybody to go sleep. That's what we're gonna kill y'all. Every actor's dream is to work with Tarantino, you know? Yeah. Because it just, nobody writes. I mean, especially women's roles. All of men's roles are great too, but I'm not as interested <laughs> in terms of my acting in that. But um, so the character was such a great character. I mean, to be the only woman who's, and she's so tough, you know, she's as tough as any of the men in this. And she gets a lot of her, like, ego and pride from that. Um, And she's also just feral. (laughs) Was there anything in particular in the script that made you the most nervous? Well, I mean, I've never done any real stunt work before. You know, I haven't done, like... A lot of movies with punches and um, my excitement about doing it was much grander than my um, worry about doing it, you know, or my fear of doing it. Also, I knew that, like, Quentin really, he's a very caring person and he really cares about everyone's safety. And so that made it a big impression on me. And then also just working with Kurt, who's been doing this for so long and really if you have to be punched by anyone <laughs> on film <laughs> you want it to be kurt russell because i just very early on i realized this man is never 
ever going to get even close to my face. So I never anticipated it. I never anticipated a punch. And that is not an easy thing to do if you're afraid. So I get like all these um, praise from all the guys, you know, about how great I am at taking a punch. But the truth is the praise really goes to Kurt because I could never have done that with another actor, I don't think. I mean, and also if you, Kurt said something really true because Kurt's been doing it so long. He said, if you ever abuse that trust, like if you ever hit by accident, you never get that back. Hmm. There's a lot that's challenging in this movie, um, kind of thematically and linguistically. You know, there's a lot of one particular sort of, you know, taboo word, uh, well, taboo for us now, not for the time period of the movie. Um, you know, a lot of sort mm-hmm. of race relation things. What, what about that in the script um, was interesting to you? And, and was it was that difficult to kind of grapple with um, on, on, when filming? Well, it was the lexicon of the day. You know, she's not, she's, she's only doing things to shock and provoke. It's not... Um... There's nothing really behind any of it, you know? Right. It's just like any other part of acting, in a way. You have to take it on the care on the, in the way the character does it. Is there so, I mean, there's so much pressure, I think, on actresses especially to try to be likable characters. Like, everyone wants women to be likable a lot more than they do for men. And is there something liberating for you in not only being the only woman in this movie, but being maybe the most dastardly villain of the whole bunch? Like, you're so yes. unlikable that you've brought it to a whole new level. I know, because you know what's so funny about that is that um, women really like her. (laughs) And, (laughs) you know, you're just playing it as it comes, meaning every scene has its own sort of life, and she's trying to survive and outwit people and figure things out as she goes. But I'm not playing a result, and I don't know what that looks like from the outside. I know what it feels like from the inside. And I like Daisy. You always have to sort of like her. For me, anyway, I need to like who I'm playing somewhat. And there's a lot about, you know, Daisy that I, that I do like. But she does definitely get an ego boost out of how well she takes a punch. You know, and since that's all John Ruth, the hangman who's, you know, she's his prisoner, all like he really can have over her. It's just, for her, it's nothing. Like, she really feels like she has him in the palm of her hand, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, just to switch gears a little bit, we wanted to talk a little t- about Annalisa as well. And, and now mm-hmm. that's an entirely different thing. I mean, here's a, a voiceover performance. Um, you know, you know, and I, I know what little I know about you know, how to do that as an actor, you know, that you know, you're, a lot of times you're alone or you're with the director or something, but not necessarily with your cast members. And yet this movie, Annalisa, you know, Charlie Kaufman uh, co-directed and wrote... Um, it's so human, and, and it, it, it feels so much like real life, even though it's stop-motion animation. How do you capture that in a voice performance? Well, we did that. Initially, That was um, we did that as a play right. um, at Royce Hall. So it was called Theater for the New Ear, and Carter Bur- Burwell wrote the music. Um, and there, were, there was a Foley artist that the audience could see. Um, and we were sitting in director's chairs behind him. And so it had, there was a lot of humor to be had with, you know, the fact that the actors are just sitting there, but you, the, what you're hearing is them making love, or you're hearing the ice bucket, or you can tell what's going on by the sounds the Foley artist is making, and by the dialogue, that it's never that, you know, it's never obvious, in a way. And then the idea of doing it as, you know, it was only two nights, and we all loved doing it so much, that it felt sad when that was over, that it had such a short, sweet <laughs> life, but... You know, the actors kept, we all kept calling Charlie and hoping we could do it again somewhere. And then this 
idea to do it as a stop-motion animated movie came up, which I think is kind of a perfect marriage. But I had no idea what the outcome would be. So when we did the voicing for the film, we spent three days, and it was all the actors were there together all the time. Mm. So it was the three of us inside this dark soundstage, and it was incredibly intimate. Like, the love scene was probably, I even though I was fully clothed and, like, probably standing six feet away from David, it felt like the most intimate, embarrassing love scene I've ever done. Wow. And when I watched the movie, it's the same thing. I, I like, I just cringe because there's something so awkward and real, but it's puppets. For anyone who's seen the movie, uh, Tom Noonan does all, basically all of the other voices in the movie that aren't you and David Thewlis. What is it like watching someone in the room, like, you know, having a conversation with himself or just kind of transforming that way? I mean, he's, he's an amazing it is actor. incredible. <laughs> I mean, he did a phenomenal job. And he says, like, it was hard for him because on stage, because you could see it was Tom Noonan doing all the voices, he could really play with his voice and create all these different characters. But what he doesn't, I don't think he doesn't even fully appreciate about his own performances, but in watching the movie, when he plays a little boy, he has the enthusiasm and the energy of a little boy. Like, he does manage to create all these different characters, even though he had to keep his voice very, very much the same for each and every one. He still created every character is singular, you know? Yeah, it's a really an incredible um, accomplishment you think about. It's not like Hank Azaria doing a bunch of different, you know, characters on The Simpsons. He had to have the same voice and yet somehow convey yeah. to the audience And yet that somehow convey, yes, yeah. exactly. The hurt, you know, ex-lover, the disappointed spouse and, you know, all these things. He does them so beautifully and, and subtly. Well, it's such an exciting award season for, for you just between those two films. Um, and, and, you know, we've been talking to some of, the, of our guests about, you know, the Oscars that they've been to. And, and you've been at least once before, right? Do you have any fun or mm-hmm. kind of fond memories about going and the event itself? And any thoughts about that? I mean, the whole night is such a, um, it's like so celebratory. And then everyone's also a bit nervous. And you can feel the adrenaline in the audience. And then there's all the people that come and sit down if you go out to the bar, the people that come in, the seat fillers, you know, all about that. Right. And it's my favorite thing about the Oscars. Every time you stand up, someone takes your seat just to make sure yeah, there's no one I love that, too. It's like, it's just something that's sort of, it's hilarious, and yet it works somehow. <laughs> right. it's, it's Charlie Kaufman-esque, actually, in, in a way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's really yeah, true. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know, the whole thing is kind of, getting ready for it is a lot of fun, too. I mean, in a very girly way. That's really fun. And since you, I mean, you are kind of a, a kid of Hollywood in a way. Is there something about, does it feel like a family reunion for you? Or do you go and get starstruck just like the rest of us? I, I must get starstruck because there are certain people I've met and I've forgotten that I met them. And, <laughs> because I guess I'm so starstruck, actually, that I just blank it out completely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, and then there's other people that just, nice it just feels like oh yeah this is our town so with this year in particular when you've got two films that i, I think anomalisa and hateful are opening within days of each other does it feel more overwhelming or more exciting or maybe a combination of both it actually feels really good i have to say i love i love both of these movies and it's very rare i think to have two movies come out in a in a year that you love to have them both come out within a week of each other is, is a little surreal um, so I'm just trying to just enjoy it. And 
I, it is a really busy time. Like tonight's my premiere in New York of this movie, but they're also having the premiere in L.A. of Anomalisa. Oh. So I'm sad. I can't be two places at once, you know. But when, how often do you get to be sad that you can't be two places at once? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's about all we had for you. But thank you for taking the time. We really, I know. You, oh, you know, my pleasure. Again, it's a very busy time we know for you. So congratulations. It's really an awesome year. Uh, both movies are, are, are awesome and you're great in them. So we appreciate it. And enjoy the premiere. Oh. I will. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank Thank you you. so much. All right. Bye. I think you're extraordinary. Why? I don't know yet. It's just obvious to me that you are. And now it's time to go big before we go home. We're going to get a little technical and talk about the best cinematography category. But there's a really interesting narrative there this year in that Emmanuel Lubezki, Chivo, to people in the know, uh, who is a cinematographer for The Revenant, could easily win his third Oscar in a row, which has never happened in that category before and may have never happened in any category before. That's a really crazy thing to do. He uh, won last year for Birdman and the year before for Gravity. Uh, Richard, do you think he's going to pull it off? Well, um, I think it's definitely possible. He's he's certainly an industry favorite. Uh, the Revenant looks incredible, as we've spoken about on this podcast. But um, I think that um, three in a row is maybe too many, uh, even for for him. Um, so I'm going to say that um, Edward Lockman could come in and steal it. He he uh, did the cinematography for Carol. He's worked with director Todd Haynes a lot before, um, and I think that everyone who has reviewed Carol, uh, even if they don't respond necessarily to the themes or you know the kind of deeper meaning of the film, they do all tend to agree that it looks amazing and a lot of that is owed to um, to Lachman's work so uh, he's been nominated once before for Far From Heaven uh, but he's also DP movies like uh, Virgin Suicides and you know again the other Todd Haynes movies so I think he might be due um, so that that could be a, a potential spoiler um, against The Revenant's very good chances. Um, I'm going to go with a Revenant spoiler as well, even though I think it's very possible that Lubezki wins a third time. But uh, John Seal, who's the cinematographer for Mad Max Fury Road, has been nominated four times and won for The English Patient. Uh, As we talked about last week, Mad Max might be too weird for Oscar voters, but I think the cinematographer's branch could at least get that movie on the ballot because it does look so spectacular. And from there, if maybe people don't want to watch The Revenant or grossed out by it and Mad Max seems more fun or seems more beautiful, who knows? Uh, It's a really incredible looking movie, too. So who knows? Uh, Mike, what about you? Okay, I'm just going to go throw another fastball down the middle here and say give it to Chivo. Uh, <laughs> as Richard said, there's some, some people have issues with Revenant as well, uh, but I don't think anybody can deny that it's a completely new sort of look at the Old West and this incredible landscape. And something like that, you know, heart-stopping scene where Leo gets mauled by the bear, you just you can't shake it for days. And so I do think that it's the kind of achievement that actually could get a really ridiculous uh, precedent-setting thing like three Oscars, three years in a row. And I also just want to point out that uh, Lubezki is the cinematographer not only of The Tree of Life and, of course, Birdman and Gravity, his last two um, winning films, but also Reality Bites. And I think on that (laughs) basis alone... I think that I'm just throwing him another statue. That's a good point. And also, I think, Mike, about The Revenant, that there's degree of difficulty. I mean, we all know that that was a grueling shoot, and he presumably had to be there for some portion of it. Whereas, you know, Lachman for the Carol guy, he, um, you know, he turned Cincinnati into New York, but that that was that's not quite as challenging. <laughs> it's, it's no yeah. uh, sub-zero temperatures in Calgary, right? Then what right. is? But the reality bites thing, I think you're right, Mike. That's really going to bring it over yeah, the top. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You see, Laney, this is all we need: a couple of smokes, a cup of coffee. 
and a little bit of conversation. You and me and five bucks. You got it. The Gen X voters in the Academy are gonna aren't gonna yeah. be able gotta, to resist. You gotta get the message out. Let <laughs> let the people know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us all writing about award season and much more at VanityFair.com, or you can follow us all on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y, Mike. I'm at Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman, and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Find us along with many more great podcasts at Panoply.fm. 